Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this sermon from Hope Church here in Las Vegas, Nevada. I pray that the preaching and teaching of this ministry has built your faith in Christ, inspired you to abide in him, and equipped you as a Jesus follower, no matter where you're tuning in from. If you would say that you have benefited from the ministry here at Hope, we would love to invite you to partner with us by joining in our year-end offering we call Hope for the World. Our goal is to raise $300,000 that will go towards meeting specific needs in Las Vegas, the West, and the world. So if you've enjoyed the blessings of this video or podcast resource, would you prayerfully consider making a gift to this Hope for the World offering? If it's on your heart to do so and the Spirit is leading you, you can go to hopechurchlv.com give for the details about the specific needs we are seeking to meet through this offering. Thanks in advance for your generosity. Now, let's jump into our December sermon series, The Weary World Rejoices. Well, good morning, Hope Church family. It's good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to open them to Isaiah chapter nine. Uh, I'm gonna ask for your forgiveness in advance. It's gonna take a minute for us to, before we get there, but I promise we will get there. Uh, this past week, I got the really, really special opportunity to take my wife on a surprise trip to New York during Christmas time. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten to go to New York during Christmas time, but the only word that I can use to describe what it's like to be in that city at this time of year is magical. Like it is unbelievable. As we walked the streets of New York, we got to see some of the most famous and beautiful scenes that we've seen in movies and other places that I've ever seen. We got to go and see, literally this year, it's the world's largest, or in history, it's the largest Rockefeller tree uh, in history. We got to see it being lit. It was beautiful. We got to see the ice rink. We got to walk up and go up on top of the Rockefeller Center to look over the New York skyline and see the world, uh, the One World building, the really big one. The, we got to see the Empire State Building where, you know, Buddy the Elf was in and he pushed all the elevator buttons in that movie. Love it. Yeah. I wanted to do it. Didn't do it. Got to go up top there. And then I got to see, honestly, the, the greatest scene of all, which was I got to stare and then enjoy the greatest pizza and the greatest cheesecake in all the world. Again, I don't know if you remember, about two years ago, I got to talk to you about New York cheesecake and New York pizza, and I got to enjoy it again. My favorite cheesecake in all the world, it's a place called Eileen's Cheesecake. It's unbelievable. My favorite pizza in all the world is called Prince Street Pizza. And guys, did you know that Prince Street Pizza just came to Vegas? at the new Durango Hotel. I went there on Friday. <laughs> I got back from New York on Saturday, got to eat it again on Friday. Jesus answers prayers, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> got to see some of the most unbelievable, gladness-inducing scenes in all the world. But then, you know this, as I walked the streets of New York, I was also faced with some of the saddest realities in all the world. I would walk the streets and I would see a woman there unable to find cover from the, the rain and the cold and she had nowhere to sleep. I was walking the streets and I would see on the ground literally bags of drugs and needles that were just used. 
I, true story, we were walking down Times Square, and as we were walking down it, we got rerouted by the NYPD because there was a massive, peaceful protest calling for the end of violence for what's happening over there in the Middle East. We had to be completely rerouted and go a different way, and it was just a reminder for me of, man, we can live in a world and we can see so much beauty while at the same time see so much brokenness. And none of that describes the brokenness in my own life, in my own family, and even in our own city. Obviously, on Wednesday, we all witnessed a tragedy right in the heart of our city at UNLV. None of us this morning need to be reminded that brokenness is everywhere and affects everyone. But here's a question that I do think we need to ask ourselves this morning as we get going. In light of all the brokenness that exists, here's a question that I think we should ask. Why? Like really, why is there so much brokenness in our world? And why is it so pervasive? Meaning like, why is it that brokenness spans every generation, every race, every person, and every place? There's not a place on earth where brokenness doesn't touch. And here's the deal. We know the answer, don't we? We know why brokenness exists everywhere, and we know that the reason is because of sin. We know that sin is the root of brokenness, but here's the deal. This morning, I don't think the general title of sin is helpful enough for us this morning. What we need to do this morning is get behind the general title of sin to see why sin entered the story in the first place. See, and maybe if we do this, we'll be able to start finding our way out of all of this brokenness that we experience. Maybe, just maybe, if we're able to name it, we'll be able to start remedying it. So, why did sin enter the story in the first place? Well, the Bible gives us an answer in Genesis chapter 3. Let's recap the story thus far. In Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, God has created the world. He's created human beings, male and female. He created us in his image and he looked at everything that he created and he said it was what? It was good. It was the world as it should be. And in this world, God gave Adam and Eve, the first humans, a command not to eat off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan, A fallen angel in the form of a certain serpent tempts Eve with this line. Check this out. Listen to what he says. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Like, did he really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what the enemy's doing? From the very beginning pages of Scripture, The enemy here is doing his best to get Eve to question what she's already heard from the Lord. This is what the enemy does. His consistent tactic is to try to get us to question or doubt what God has already promised. He does this specifically by lying to us. Jesus in John chapter eight, speaking of the enemy, says about him that when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. What does that mean? As natural as it is for you and I to speak whatever our native tongue is, our native language, 
That's what lying is for the enemy. As easy as it is for you and I to speak in our native tongue, that's how easy it is for the enemy to lie to you and to me. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. This is his primary strategy against you and me. And this is why it says in the verses that follow, here's what it says. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There's the lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's what he's doing. He's trying to get them to believe that God's holding out on them. That God really doesn't have your best interest in mind. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Good job, husband, protecting your wife. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. You know what this is? This is called shame. This is called brokenness. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There it is. The first time in all of human history, brokenness has now entered the story. See, this story is so much more than just a story about a couple eating a piece of fruit. It's a cosmic story demonstrating how, here it is, the lack of trust in the character and nature of God is at the root of all the brokenness we experience. Did you see it? Why has sin entered the story? Why has brokenness entered the story? Here's why. Because there is a lack of trust, a lack of belief, a lack of resting in the character and nature of God. The enemy had convinced Adam and Eve, he's not for you. He can't be trusted. And they took the bait. And we do this all the time, don't we? At the root of every single one of our sins is the sin of unbelief. Unbelief in the character and nature and the words and ultimately in the person of God. But then here's what's interesting. The story continues. The story continues and it shows us the key areas that we're gonna experience brokenness. And this is key for where we're going today. Look what happens next. Immediately after this, man and woman separate from God. It says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did man and woman do? Immediately they ran from the presence of God. This is what your sin's trying to do, friends. It's always trying to get you to run from God. Number two, here's what happens. Man and woman conflict with each other. Immediately, if you know the story, God comes to Adam and he goes, Adam, bro, why'd you eat the fruit? And he goes, well, the woman you gave me. Good job, Adam. First, you don't protect your wife, and second, you start blaming her. You're killing this thing. Immediately, there's conflict between man and woman. And then number three, God curses the ground because of the sin of human beings. And there is now conflict between man and creation itself. God talks about how there's going to be thorns and thistles that grow up from the earth. All of these three things results in what I'm just calling three very clear domains of brokenness 
that we experience because of our sin. We experience brokenness between human beings and God. Brokenness between human beings ourselves. Brokenness between human beings and creation. And if we wanna categorize all of these three things together, we find three areas of brokenness that every human being has, no matter who you are or what you believe about God. And here's the first one. Number one, all of us experience spiritual brokenness between us and God. This is at root the first and primary and most foundational area of brokenness that all of us have. And because this relationship is broken, it spills over into the second area of brokenness, which is number two, relational brokenness between us and each other. You see this every day. We experience this from war and widespread divorce and racism and mass shootings. We see this all over our world. There is relational brokenness. And all of this occurs in an environment that is, number three, this result of physical brokenness. We live amidst a world that is broken. Romans speaks about how All of earth, all of creation is groaning, awaiting the redemption that comes from Jesus. It's waiting to be restored. It's waiting to be revived. But not only creation, not only our world, but but this piece of creation, our bodies. Pastor Scott mentioned it last week, but our outer self is wasting away, is it not? Listen, how do I know that? I know that because I hurt myself sleeping now. When I was in New York, I walked, wait for it, 30,000 steps a day. Just for context, at Disneyland, I've done this a couple times, you walk about 23,000. 30,000 steps a day. These little twigs that I call legs, they are wasting away. (laughs) But not only that, I'm making fun, but, but what about what's going on inside of us, right? We all experience anxiety and depression and intrusive thoughts. We, here's the point. Brokenness is pervasive. All of us feel this. All of us feel this. And everybody in the scriptures felt this too. If you want to read the rest of the Old Testament, essentially the rest of the Old Testament is the people of God trying to fix all their brokenness, but apart from God. So they go to wars, they go to towers, they wanna build towers that'll help them reach God. Why? Because they're trying to bridge the spiritual gap. They try to perform rituals and religious duty in order to be good enough so that God would accept them. They do all of these things and nothing ever worked. But we do this too, don't we? All of us feel this brokenness, no matter who you are. And we all have ways that we've tried to remedy it ourselves whether it's spiritual, relational, or physical. I mean, the whole reason other religions uh, exist is because all of us know that something's broken us between us and our creator. We have relational problems, relational conflict, and so we think politics and policy is gonna fix it. Or we look to tolerance. If we just let everybody do whatever they want, then everybody will be okay and we'll be at peace or whether it's our physical body, our body breaking down. So we look to medicine and we look to mindfulness to help ease our anxiety or or healthy living and not that those things are bad, but here's my question. How are those things working out for us? In all of our attempts to 
to fix our brokenness. How is it working? Well, the stats show us that we're the most lost, anxious, depressed, and lonely people to ever walk the face of the earth. What are all of these attempts trying to achieve? What are we really, in the depths of our being, what are, what are we longing for? What are we trying to achieve? Here's what we're trying to achieve. We all want peace. Don't we? Wouldn't it be nice in the midst of this weary world to walk through this weary world with peace? See, we all want things to be as they should be. We want peace with our creator, peace with our brothers and sisters, and peace in ourselves and with our world. But how are we gonna get this peace? Especially in light of the fact that we were the ones who broke it. How are we gonna be the ones to get peace when we were the one who fell to the temptation to not trust God and we were the one who created the problem in the first place? Well, we get a hint. I love this verse. We get a hint at how all of this is gonna be fixed in verse 15 when God is speaking to Satan and here's what he says. Look at this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and then notice this, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, look at this, will crush, will crush your head, Satan and you will strike his heel. Theologians call this verse the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first gospel, it, because this is the first glimmer of the good news for how all of this is gonna be fixed. See, this is the first time in the scriptures that God speaks about how one day an offspring will come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and the offspring will destroy the one who destroyed this peace. We know this offspring to be who? Jesus, the son of God, born of woman. And here's what's so wild about this. The one who was offended, Jesus, is the one who pursues making the peace. How counterintuitive. The very one who shouldn't be pursuing the peace is the one that is. Now, why is that? Here's why. Because he's the only one who ultimately can. The only one who can ultimately provide us the peace that we are all looking for is Jesus. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate by remembering the coming of Jesus Christ because it's in his coming that we find reasons to rejoice in the midst of our weary world. And now we're in Isaiah chapter nine. <laughs> in Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven, we get a prophetic verse, a prophetic vision of this offspring and who he is and what he does and how he's gonna make peace in the world. Let's read it together. Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then let's all say this together, one, two, three, Prince of Peace. Look at this. Of the increase, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. From this beautiful prophetic passage about Jesus, I wanna give us in the time remaining two reasons, two reasons from this passage for why you and I can have peace this Christmas. Here's the first reason. Number one, because of who Jesus is. Because of who Jesus is. It says, for to us a child, a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, that's key, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. What we see in this text is that a child or an offspring is going to be born, and the government's going to sit upon his shoulder. What is this speaking to us about? Well, it's speaking to us about the reality that this baby, this child is a king, and he's going to establish his kingdom. See, but this isn't just any kind of baby. This isn't just any kind of baby. Why? Because every other earthly king in this world that we've ever seen throughout history, every other earthly king, they started as a baby, and then here, they became king. But only this baby started as a king and became a baby. This baby is like no other baby. This baby is a king who became a baby. Why? Because Jesus left heaven's throne to come to this earth as a baby, and he came to establish his kingdom of peace here on earth. He is literally the son of God. And what we get here is we get insight into the ways that Jesus was gonna establish his kingdom of peace through the names that he was given. You know this, but in ancient Jewish culture, names meant a lot more than they do now. For example, I really hope, <laughs> I really hope my parents didn't name me Trenton because of what my name originally meant. I decided this week, I'm gonna figure that out. What did my name originally mean? What does my name Trenton come from? And I looked up my name and let me just tell you, I was incredibly disappointed. My name originally, it's a Latin name, it comes originally from the word, ready? Trespasser. <laughs> what? Trespasser? It, it was used as a reference for a river's tendency to step outside the bounds of its path when it's flooded. And I got to thinking, man, like, I really hope that when I was born, my parents didn't name me this because they thought of me as like a little trespasser on their little life. Like, ugh, trespass, he's trespassing, just name him Trenton. No, they, obviously, they, they didn't do that. They did it for a much more important reason and much more significant reason. They did it because they thought my name sounded cool. 
They, they also wanted to keep intact the, the idea that, you know, the Dorner family is just a whole bunch of T's. I don't know if you know this, but I have two brothers, Taylor and Trace, then there's me. And then we had the sister who really was the trespasser in our family. She was, she was later on, she, uh, uh, her name was Anna Tate. So we just, got, we just got T's in our name. That's why I got named Trenton, just gotta stick with the T's. So obviously, names don't mean as much as they did back in ancient Jewish culture. See, in ancient Jewish culture, names were, were not given simply as a means of identification and distinction, but rather they were given as a way of communicating about someone's character and nature. You know this. So considering that, think about the names given here. Jesus here, if this is communicating to us about who he is, it says he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and the prince of peace. See, these names don't just distinguish Jesus. They communicate to us about who he really is in his nature. So consider just for a moment, very quickly, the idea that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor, the idea of wonderful here speaks to the idea that his counsel is literally extraordinary. It's wonderful. It's too great to completely comprehend. He, as a counselor, he does what every good counselor does. He helps you and me with grace and with patience see reality. As the wonderful counselor, he gives us the promise of direction. He points us towards the right path. He is the guide to the life and life to the full. Consider just for a moment how necessary this is in the midst of a weary world where all of us want to live life to the full. And yet there are so many options presented in front of us as the way to experience life and life to the full. I'm reminded of a proverb, one of my favorite proverbs says this, that there is a way that seems right to a man. It seems right, but its end is death. Here's what the Proverbs are telling us. Listen, there's gonna be a lot of ways presented in front of you. And there's gonna seem a way, a pathway that it's gonna feel right. It's gonna seem right. It might agree with culture a little bit. It might agree with your family a little bit. It's gonna seem right to you in your spirit, but here's what you gotta know. It's gonna end in death. So what does that create in me, knowing that there's gonna be a way that seems right to me? I, you know what I need? I need wonderful counsel. I need somebody that I can go to, Kevin, that's gonna speak truth to me and show me the path to true life. This is what Jesus is. He's promised to counsel me towards his kingdom of peace. But not only that, he's also a mighty God. The mighty God. Mighty refers to God's strength and his power. See, Jesus is not just wise. He's almighty. He's all powerful. Not only is he a wonderful counselor who gives us direction, but he's also the mighty God who can overcome any obstacle standing in our way to the peace that he's leading us to. See, it's one thing to have a counselor who can tell you the way to go, but it's another thing to have a God who walks with you on that way. He is the mighty God. Jesus, as the mighty God, gives us the promise of strength. When we can't, he can. 
When we want to give up, he never will. When we have an impossible situation in front of us, Jesus makes it possible. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom of peace by being a strong and powerful God, not just a mere mortal. He is the mighty God. He's also an everlasting father. And this is for somebody today. To clarify though, by Jesus having this name, the scriptures are not declaring Jesus to be the heavenly father, the other member of the Trinity. What this is doing is Jesus, he's communicating, the scriptures are communicating that he is the son and he always will be the son. However, in the way that he leads, loves, shepherds, and cares for his people as he's establishing his kingdom of peace, he's gonna do it like a good father would do it. He's gonna do it with care, with love, He's gonna do it as he provides and protects. And here's the awesome part. He is the everlasting father. His fathering of his children is everlasting, meaning there's no end in sight, friends. He will never leave or forsake his kids. Jesus, as the everlasting father, he's giving us the promise of love, of love. What we all so desperately desire, right? to be fully known and fully loved. To be fully known and fully accepted. Jesus as our heavenly father is that. He's not an absent father. He walks with you, he sustains you, he never leaves you. You see, so many of our root fears as individuals, just as human beings, so many of them of our root fears and our root needs are cared for here in the descriptions of who Jesus is. See, our fear of not knowing what to do, of how to best live life, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And our fear of not being good enough, strong enough, smart enough to do what will result in the good life, Jesus is our mighty God. Our fear of being abandoned and not cared for, for being from from the, the people who are most important in our life, Jesus as the mighty God, as the king of the universe, he is our everlasting father. And he is all these things to us so that he can also be the prince of peace. Now, isn't it interesting? It doesn't say he's the king of peace. He's the prince of peace. Now, why is that? Well, here's why. Because in a monarchy, a prince's role is to represent the rule and reign of the king on the ground in front of the people. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's the one on the ground. He's the one in front of the people. He's the one in the mess with you, representing what the kingdom of God looks like in action. The word for peace here in this text, it's a word you probably know. It's the word shalom. It's a word communicating completeness, wholeness, and harmony. And from that, we can create a biblical definition of what true peace is. And here it is. Peace is the presence of harmony. It's the presence of completeness. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is putting back together what was broken in the garden like a Lego set that's been destroyed. Through Jesus's life, he is putting the pieces back together in their proper places as he builds his kingdom of peace. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus wants to restore what was decayed. 
He wants to revive what was dead. He wants to save that which is lost. This is the mission of Jesus. This is who our God is. This is who we celebrate at Christmas. We can have peace this Christmas because of who Jesus is, but not only that, also because of, number two, because of what Jesus does. Not only who he is in his character and nature, but also in his actions, what he does. Look at verse seven with me. It says this, that the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to, here it is, establish it, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then I love this, the zeal or the jealousy or passion of the Lord of hosts will do this, will do this. The increase of his kingdom and of peace has come and is coming. If you remember with us in the gospel of Mark, when Jesus begins his ministry, what does he say? He says, repent and believe the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. It has come in the person of Jesus, but it's also coming. Why? Because there's going to be no end of his kingdom of peace. And why is that? Here's why. Because the Lord of hosts is going to do this. He's gonna do this. He will establish it. He will uphold his kingdom of peace as it's increasing in the world. But here's the question, how? How did Jesus do this? And here's how he did it. He did it by being a peacemaker, not simply a peacekeeper. You know, there is a difference, right, between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. See, at Christmas time, the peacekeepers come out of the, out of the closet, if you will. Because what they do is all the conflict that arises in your family, they go, ah, oh, it's the holidays. What we need to do, we just need to sweep it under the rug. Can you imagine if Jesus had done that? With all the brokenness that we described earlier, Jesus could have rightly, he would have com been completely just in looking at what we've done and been like, look, guys, you created this. You did what's wrong you messed this up, you created the brokenness, this doesn't have anything to do with me anymore, leave me out of it, fix it yourself. But see, that's not what he does. He makes peace. He makes peace, he doesn't sweep it under the rug, he makes it, and how does he make it? Here's how he makes it, through his initiating love. Look at this in Romans chapter five, I love these verses, I love these verses, look what it says. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, while we were still messed up, while we were still broken, while we couldn't do anything to fix it, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, declared righteous, how? By his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here's the hope, Hope Church. When we couldn't do anything to fix our brokenness, Jesus came to this earth as a sinless baby, lived the life that you and I couldn't live, died the death that you and I should have died because of our sin, and he defeated death once and for all through his resurrection, thereby making peace. But look how cool this is as we close. 
You remember those three areas of brokenness we mentioned earlier? Spiritual brokenness, relational brokenness, physical brokenness. Here's the beauty of Jesus. He makes peace in every single one. First spiritual, look at this in Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The first and most primary brokenness in our lives is spiritual between us and God. And because of Jesus, because of what he's done in making peace through his life, death, and resurrection, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has done everything necessary to fix you and I's most basic and fundamental need, our relationship with God himself. He has brought peace there. Number two, relational, look at this. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Here it is. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. You see what Jesus has done? He first makes peace with us vertically, but then he makes peace with us horizontally. So it doesn't matter our differences because of Jesus, we can be one. And then finally, number three, physical. Remember, this is talking about our bodies, the anxiety and stuff that we've got in our own heart because of our brokenness. He says, Jesus says, peace, peace I leave you. Leave with you my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Here's what he says. Let not your hearts, the inside of us, be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Here's what he does. He's made peace with our physical body and our world. He's given us the ability to live in the peace of God. A.W. Tozer says this. In Jesus, the Prince of Peace, we find the resolution to the deepest conflicts of our souls. His peace is not just a momentary calm, it's a profound, unshakable serenity that comes from being reconciled to God. Tozer says it that way, Trenton says it this way. We cannot experience the peace of God until we have first been made right with God. But Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, has done everything necessary to bring complete and total harmony to all that is broken in our world. But here's the question as we finish. Maybe you're in here and you've been a Christian for a long time, but you look at your life and you go, man, my, my life doesn't look like serenity. I don't really experience that peace. What, what hope do you have for me? Well, here's what I wanna say to you. It's at this moment that the enemy's gonna start whispering in your ear, this isn't for you. God didn't actually bring peace. And here's what I wanna encourage you. Expose the lie of the enemy to the truth of the gospel. Expose it as a lie and turn and trust in Jesus. Your peace is found in a person and his name is Jesus. Consider this story as we close. I once heard a story about a woman who was dying. Pastors and family members were around her bed and they said to her, ma'am, do you know that you're dying? She said, yes. The 
pastors look at her and they say to her, have you made peace with God? She said, no. Confused and maybe thinking she didn't understand, they asked again, ma'am, do you know you're dying? Yes. Have you made peace with God? Have you made peace with your creator? And she says, no. Again, the pastors go, they don't know what to say. They don't, this woman's been in church her whole life. How, how have you not made peace with God? And then the woman, sensing the confusion, she, she says, pastors, I have not made peace with God but rather I'm resting in the peace that Jesus bought for me on the cross. I'm not making peace. I'm resting in Jesus making me right with God. See, this is how you and I live with never ending, always satisfying, ever increasing peace. We go to Jesus. This is his invitation as we finish in Matthew chapter 11. If you want his peace, you want his rest, here's what he says, come to me. Come to me, I am your peace. All of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No matter who you are today, whether you're a Christian or you're not, here's the invitation of Jesus, come to me. Come to me because in me, you find your peace. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, Thank you for being our Prince of Peace. Thank you for being the one who, who fixes all of our brokenness, who, who, who remedies all of our ills. Jesus, thank you that in you we can find our peace. I don't know where you're at today, but here's what I wanna encourage you. If you're here today and you don't have peace with God, here's what I wanna encourage you with. Jesus has done everything necessary to make peace with you. All you've gotta do is come to him. Come to him by faith and surrender, saying, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my God. I want you as my Savior and my Lord. That's available to you today. So if you wanna begin a relationship with Jesus, we would be honored to help you and, and, and walk you on that journey. And so we're gonna have pastors down here, down front in just a second. We would be honored if you would come to us and just tell us that you wanna begin a relationship with Jesus. We would be honored to shepherd you towards the Prince of Peace. But maybe you're a Christian here today and you don't experience this peace. Here's what I wanna encourage you with. Rest, rest in the peace Jesus gives. Don't try to earn it. Don't try to manufacture it. Do what Jesus says in Matthew 11, just come to him. Lay down your burdens, lay down your weariness, give them over to Jesus and let him replace it with his peace that passes all understanding. I don't know how we need to respond this morning, but I wanna encourage you to follow the spirit in whatever way he leads. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. We love you, Lord. Would you do now what only you can do, spirit of God, I pray the peace of Christ would rule in the hearts of your people now, Lord. We love you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we respond this morning.